Welcome to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and Dee. I'm Maz Mary, And I'm Dana DelVal. Whether you're a person on an addiction sobriety path, or you know someone who is, we're here to talk about our journey with it. And more importantly, we want to help end the stigma and shame of alcoholism. And we want to bring some hope and laughter along the way too. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning. Good morning. It's Guest Thursday on Daily Dose, and we have been waiting all week for this conversation because if you watched Karina Monison last week, you know that this is a two-part series. Karina was last week, and her mom, Joanna Conti, is joining us this week. And I, I all morning as I was getting ready for this, I was thinking, you know, I don't want to discount Joanna as simply being Karina's mom. Joanna has plenty <laughs> of uh, credibility in her own right. But since she's the second part of the interview, it is sort of like she's coming in as Karina's mom. So I know that's a title she wears proudly, but she has many, many other assets to bring to the conversation as well. So I think it's time to just bring Joanna in and introduce her to all of you. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Joanna Conti. Good morning, (laughs) Joanna. Good morning, Dana and Maz. It's such a pleasure to be here. And thank you so much for that nice introduction. (laughs) Well, you know, it's a funny thing when you have your own life, which all humans do, but you're identified as, oh, this is somebody's wife or somebody's mom or, you know, whatever. I I really did think about it this morning and thought, well, we'll start with that introduction and then we'll let you unfold from there. (laughs) I remember when Karina was first born, suddenly becoming Karina's mom. And it was, you know, it was such a title I wore with pride. And yet it was really kind of odd. Like, I'm a businesswoman. I'm a scientist, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yes, it is a funny thing. And then once they go to school, then you are absolutely just fill in the blanks, mom. Yeah. I know that Quinn has classmates who have no idea what my name is. They just know me as Quinn's mom. (laughs) Yep, exactly. (laughs) Well, Joanna, I know you watched last week's conversation and I'm sure you had lots of um, thoughts and reactions, even though this is not the first time that you and Karina have shared this story. But why don't we just jump right in and you tell us your side of Karina's journey wherever you want to start and however you want to uh, lead us into it. Sure. Well, as you could tell last week, Karina was an incredible daughter and very, um, uh, had a a wonderful social life and was a wonderful writer and very creative and very artistic. And, um, you know, we thought in high school, she was just, drinking like high schoolers do. And then she went off to college and we started to get some hints that there was a problem. And one of the worst was when her sister was, who was away at the same college, called us just so upset and saying how worried she was about Karina and that Karina smelled like alcohol in the middle of the day. And Um, You know, it was really hard for her sister to share this because it felt like, you know, she was, um, you know, being mean to Karina, but she was that worried that she felt she had to let us know. 
And that was the first indication we had that something was really wrong. And when Karina came home that Christmas, I noticed that she drank like, I don't know, five glasses of wine at the Christmas table and it hadn't affected her at all. And I was thinking, this is very odd. And, um, you know, thinking about what um, her sister had told us, you know, we decided we would, we had a problem and we weren't sure, like so many people thrown into this, you have no idea what to do because your next door neighbor might have dealt with exactly the same problem, but because the of the stigma about addiction, no one's going to talk about it. So you're suddenly thrown into this world and you know absolutely nothing. And yet your child really needs you to make wise decisions. And so my husband and I found a psychiatrist who could uh, talk to Karina over that Christmas holiday. <clears throat> and um, she worked her magic with him, as she described last week. And he came back and he said, mom and dad, everybody drinks at college. <laughs> you don't have a problem. She's fine. Karina is fine. So we wanted, of course, to believe that. So we went back to life as normal. And over the next year, year and a half, things got steadily worse. And as Karina described, she was very creative in her stories of explaining away weird things like she, she'd slept through finals and she, you know, weren't wasn't exactly sure where a car was and you know and and she was you know she wanted to go for sleep testing because she was having trouble concentrating and i mean we bought it i bought it all i mean i wanted to believe and i wanted to be there for my daughter and i was worried about my daughter and then finally she called us um and this was the uh, middle of her sophomore year and said mom i have mono so I, and I have to drop out. I just can't continue with the courses this semester. And so, um, you know, I, I dropped everything and found a flight, a direct flight across the country the next morning. At who knows how much money and, you know, got her here. And uh, I only learned this was in 2008. And I only learned a couple of months ago in another discussion but in fact, she didn't have mono at all. <laughs> she just was flunking all of her classes. And that was the only way she could think of to be able to go back to college the next semester and start over was to fake an illness. So anyway, once she was back home and, and recovered amazingly fast from mono, as you might imagine, <laughs> uh, it became apparent the problem that we had. And in a, the next couple of months, there were various serious car accidents. She was airlifted to shock trauma. She, um, it, it was, it, things went downhill very, very fast. And um, it, it's, a, it's a truly scary time yeah. because you know your daughter needs help. You know you love her more than life itself and you don't know what to do. So 
unfortunately, that was just the start of many years of crisis situations where we would find ourselves usually in the ER with her with a blood alcohol level that was usually above the level that a lot of people die from. And we would know we needed to find treatment for her immediately. And each time I was forced to rely on a chance comment that somebody had made, you know, you should look at this place, you should check out that place. <clears throat> and I would call them and their admission counselors were of course always so nice. And I would say, and what is your success rate? And they'd say, trust me, we're one of the best. <laughs> that was the best answer, right? All, some other times people told me, oh, we have 80% success rate. We have 85, we have 95%. I had one owner of a treatment center have the audacity to tell me that he had 98% success rate. And you know, this is a chronic disease. You know, a lot of people need multiple stints in treatment, unfortunately, to recover. And, I, you know, you just you knew that what they were telling you was absolute nonsense. You wanted to believe that somebody out there could magically cure your daughter, but it was just really frustrating that I had to make what was clearly a life and death decision about where to send Karina for treatment multiple different times. And I had to make it on the basis of how nice was that admissions counselor. Well, and you yeah. had to make it fast. Yeah. This isn't the kind of thing where you can say, boy, we're going to do a little research. We'll come back yeah. to you next you, week. You, you got to do it today. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like I remember uh, one of the last times Karina was in the hospital uh, with a blood alcohol level. I don't even want to mention it. it was so scary. And I remember her doctor came in. And he asked her some questions like, well, you're drinking poison. Like, how do you decide how much you're drinking? And she said, I just guzzle. I just guzzle. And so he pulled me aside afterwards and he said, I can, I can keep her here for 24 hours. I can keep her here under the condition that she is a risk to herself. But I can't do it any longer than that. So you've got 24 hours to find someplace to, to, to send your daughter. And, um, and I went back, I went home that night and, you know, I'm waking up throughout the night and I remembered, I woke up in the middle of the night and I remembered a conversation I had had with a neighbor six months before at a neighborhood picnic. And she had said, if you ever need treatment again, you should check out this place. I went there and I thought it was pretty effective. And so that name just came to me in the middle of the night. Luckily, I went back the next morning to the hospital, called, they had uh, availability. They sounded like the sort of program that could Karina could really benefit from. And I was able to um, talk Karina into going. And, and I, I'm convinced that... Um, the, the, the time she spent there was what eventually allowed her to become sober long-term. 
that they really dealt with some of the underlying trauma that was causing Karina to um, drink to lethal levels. But, you know, when I, when I looked at this later, I thought, this is, this is so unfair that parents who desperately love their children don't have a better way to find treatment centers who are really doing effective treatment. So uh, it, it, it was hard to hear Karina's story because you look at her, she's a beautiful, successful young woman. She's, you know, even she seems sort of incredulous to the life she has <laughs> developed. So um, it's, it's very hard to look at her and imagine that she was probably unconsciously actively working to kill herself with alcohol. But it's harder for me as a parent actually to listen to your side of it because it's one thing to go through it, I imagine. It's another thing to watch someone go through it and the the helplessness of it. I mean, I, I did watch someone go through it, but it right. it's slightly different with a spouse than with a child, yeah. I think. I yeah, think. It must be. Um, so... So I, I'm listening to this and my heart is just breaking for you and for the millions of other parents who are in this exact same boat today. So talk to us, Joanna, about how you moved from feeling desperate in your own situation to saying, I have to make this better for somebody else. How did you do that? <laughs> Well, it took a while. I couldn't have done this in the depths of Karina's addiction because it was so overwhelming, you know, when, when you're living it. Yeah. But there did, thank goodness, there came a time when she had been sober for an extended period and it was beginning to look like, oh, please, she might be okay. And so... This was several years later, and I kept thinking about how horrible it was to have to make this decision that I knew had potentially life and death consequences for my daughter on the basis of absolutely no data. Mm -hmm. So I decided as a side project, I was running another company at the time, that I wanted to create a website where the families coming behind us could search for treatment centers that were proving that they provided truly effective treatment. So just as a side project, I created a website where families could search for treatment centers. And then I started reaching out to treatment centers across the country and was horrified to discover, this was back in 2015, that there were only five treatment centers in the entire US who were tracking their outcomes and would publicly share their results. And there are thousands of treatment centers, right? And there were five that were tracking them. And so I decided at that point, I can't start to promote this website that I created that recommended just five hmm. centers and, in, and I almost gave up, but I'm pretty stubborn. <laughs> and 
And instead, what I did was I went to an addiction treatment conference and I started talking to treatment center owners. And I said, I'm a parent. I don't get it. Why aren't you tracking your outcomes? Why aren't you making sure that what you do works? And enough of them said, we want to, it's in next year's strategic plan. We don't have a clue how to do it. That I thought there's a business opportunity here. Hmm. And I could look at this because of my background. As you mentioned, I, I've done a incredible diversity of different things, including starting an international nonprofit that helped tens of thousands of orphans in Africa and Asia and running for Congress of all things and county executive here in Maryland. And uh, I'm, I'm a chemical engineer. I'm a, you know, I'm a <laughs> researcher. More accomplished, Joanna. It's really, <laughs> well, really I mean, you, the problem is you look at my resume and you think, who is this person? No one could ever <laughs> hire her because, you know, she doesn't stick to things, right? She just keeps trying all these, you know, starting businesses in all these different industries. But um, anyway, one of the things I had done along the way was I had taught myself how to program computers, uh, how to write computer code. And I had spent five years running a software company. And so I could look at the challenge of how do you cost effectively measure treatment effectiveness? And I said, this is a rocket science. We can figure out how to do it. So I decided again as a side project, I was going to start Vista Research Group to work with treatment centers and and help them figure out their true success rate in a scientific fashion. So I started Vista Research Group in September of 2015 to cost-effectively measure addiction treatment outcomes. And shortly after that, I was digging into all the academic research about addiction, and I discovered all of the data that showed that if you monitor patients while they're in treatment for things that we know affect whether a treatment is effective or not, like, you know, are they depressed? Are they dealing with high levels of trauma? Are they self-harming? That sort of thing. If you monitor patients for that and re report the results in real time to their clinicians, that patients get better faster during treatment. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, that's an obvious thing that we can add to what we're providing to our treatment center clients. So I started Vista Research Group, and we have now been monitoring patients during treatment and following up with them afterwards since March of 2016. So it's it's been quite a ride. We've uh, monitored over 61,000 patients during treatment so far. We followed up with, I think the latest is close to 16,000 after treatment. And we finally have a critical mass of treatment centers who are uh, accurately measuring how effective their treatment is. Well, so Joanna, what are you finding with these 16,000? Are, are the numbers as depressing as, as what they have been? Or are you starting to see a shift in terms of how people manage sobriety? Or maybe that's not the purpose of, of the follow-up. Well, what we are measuring is, are the patients 
meeting their drug and alcohol treatment goals and how are they feeling and what impact did treatment have on um, whether they're able to work, how well they're getting along with their families, where are they living, all of the quality of life measures. So we have a tremendous base of data that actually is, we're sharing with some academic researchers also. And the first uh, peer-reviewed journal article just came out uh, two weeks ago that was a result of this data set that, that we have been creating and, and uh, continuing continually growing. So that's exciting to see. Uh, there's several things that we have found that I think would be of most interest to families that might be watching this. The first is that the effectiveness of treatment centers varies all across the board. Realize that every single treatment center that came to us to, and invested in measuring their outcomes did so because they were absolutely positive their outcomes were going to be better than the average, right? That's why they were, you know, wanting to do this was just to show how excellent they are. And all of these treatment centers are very highly respected. And so among these highly respected treatment centers, we found that the percentage of patients who were reachable and not using, um, one year later, for at least the last 30 days, you know, they may have relapsed at one point, but they, you know, at, at the one year point, they are doing well. Among those patients, or among those centers, we see anywhere from 18% success rate to 50% success rate. So there is a tremendous variation. And the sad thing is that there's so many people out there that are putting heart and soul into helping these people. There's a, there's a ton of really effective treatment centers. And there's also a ton of not effective treatment centers. Yeah. And people are really, you know, the people that we work with, they really care desperately. But they, until they measure their effectiveness, they can't really know how effective they are. And so the average uh, among all of the, the centers that we followed up with is about 36% of patients at the one year point are achieving their drug and alcohol treatment goals for at least the last 30 days. And there is though really hope though because the thing that gets me so excited is among those treatment centers that are measuring their outcomes, those that measure their outcomes and keep measuring their outcomes improve. Because Peter Drucker was right. What gets measured gets managed. Yeah. And we're giving them in real time 50 different patient reported metrics that they can use to determine this clinician is doing a particularly good job at helping someone deal with their trauma. And this program is getting people dissatisfied for this reason that we can fix. They can use the data that we provide to continually improve. And what we find is that 20% more patients are in recovery the second year a treatment center is doing outcomes research versus huh. the first. So that's 20% more of their patients that are thriving. 
because they're doing outcomes research. So it makes a huge difference. Well, I've got to ask you this. I know just in case there's someone watching, well, badly phrased, there will be people watching this, just in case one of them is sitting there going, oh, how can you police that information? Now, you've got a peer review publication coming out. So this thing, it's out. It's out, which has been policed. So just say a quick word of how you organize the assessment that you couldn't inflate the numbers willy-nilly. Oh, Maz is thinking from his academic hat now. <laughs> well, all well, right, I'm a data you, geek I just too. want you to say, we know this works because that's what we're... <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a wonderful question because it really uh, leads into the problem with all of these nonsensical success rates that are out there. Yeah. Um, let, let's talk for a second about uh, a treatment center that believes that or, or is claiming that they have 95% success rate. What they have probably done is reach out to a small percentage of their patients. Maybe they got 10% of their patients to respond to a survey or 15%. And they've said, oh my gosh, among those, you know, those, you know, those. 40 patients or 80 patients or whatever, you know, 95% of them were doing well. Well, and we're, those people, we couldn't reach all the rest, but we know they're doing just as well. Mm -hmm. Well, that's nonsensical. If we can't reach them, there's a reason that we can't reach them. So how we do research is we will make at each of those time periods, like a, a, we, we follow up with patients one, six and 12 months after treatment, and we will make 10 to 15 attempts to contact the patient. We will reach out by text, by cell phone. We will pick up the phone and start calling them if we don't get a, uh, if we don't, if they don't respond quickly. We pay the patients a little bit to take the surveys. We'll instantly send them a Target or a Starbucks gift card uh, for, for a small amount of money, but as thanks for immediately, um, you know, for, for filling in our survey. And if we don't reach out to them, if we can't contact them, we will reach out to a locator person, a mom or a spouse that that patient gave us permission to contact in case their cell phone number has changed or something like that. This is a notoriously difficult group of people to follow up with. But because we do all that and we promise the patient's confidentiality, they can tell us they're using again and they know it won't get back to their clinician who'd be devastated to hear it. Um, because of all that, we're typically able to reach 50 to 60% of patients at wow. each of these different time points. And what we know is that the patients we don't reach are very different from the patients that we do reach. They were a lot more likely to have walked out of treatment early, for example. Yeah. They were a lot more likely to have used uh, uh, drugs that we know are even harder to recover from than others, like heroin or cocaine. Um, so we know that that group is very different. We also know we actually did reach a lot of those patients because they started filling out our survey. But when they got to the question that asked, have you used drugs or alcohol since you left treatment? Amazingly, they all ran out of time to fill in the survey at that point. So anyway, we have a lot of information that confirms that if we don't reach that patient, we have to assume that they're using. 
And some of them may not be, some of them just may not, you know, be willing to fill out a survey or whatever. But overall, you know, what we assume is that we have to reach the patient and the patient has to tell us themselves how they're doing confidentially. And only that group will we assume is really doing well and in recovery. Do you have got another no, question? No, go for, ahead. Do you, without giving the game away too much, do you do you see or have you seen um, a difference between people who are alcoholics and people who are drug addicted? I mean, being addicted to alcohol, alcohol isn't illegal. So do you do you, do you think you get more honesty out of someone who can't get into further trouble, who says, "Yes, I admit I'm taking something that's illegal still." You know, I don't really think it's it's the legal question. Um, we do find a higher recovery rate for patients that were in treatment for alcohol addiction versus the other drugs. Uh, we see very stark differences. Um, uh, alcohol is the easiest in our research to recover from. It's followed by a lot of the drugs like um, marijuana, benzos, amphetamines, um, meth, um, and so forth. And then there's a, a final group, which is uh, heroin and cocaine, that are the hardest. We, we see the, the lowest recovery success rates for. So we do see a gradation by dr primary drug of choice. Um, but I'm not sure it's because of the legal thing. Mm -hmm. I, I think that, um, you know, I, I think that just some drugs are able to, they're, they're just harder, yeah. harder to overcome that constant yeah. pull to use again. I believe you on that one. Where, just out of curiosity, maybe you know this answer too, where do prescription drugs fall into that hierarchy of recovery? Well, what we've, uh, it, for somebody who is addicted uh, to opioids, but prescription type pills, it's kind of in that middle group, um, okay. according to our research. Okay. Um, if they have progressed to heroin, then it has dropped even further. Okay. Oof. So, um, I, in my, in my other entrepreneurial world, I, I really spend a lot of time talking about what happens when you end up on a path that you would never necessarily have chosen. And it changes the course of your life in ways you never could have anticipated. What does that path look like? So my question for you is, I, I can assume that you would never have chosen for Karina to go down this path, for your family to go down this path, but that's the path you found yourselves on. Right. It's clearly taken you in a direction that 10 years ago, you, you couldn't have even conceived of for lots of reasons, both the technology and, and the experience. What, what can you, reflect back on now, having done this work, having started this path, what are the, what are the blessings to this path? Because it's, mm. it's so incredible to listen to what you've done, the sort of the lemonade you've made out of some pretty <laughs> horrific lemons. <Yes. laughs> 
I feel incredibly blessed to be where we are right now because I feel that the research that we're doing and the way we're able to help families find uh, effective treatment, um, I feel like we're making a tremendous difference. And we are really against a, an issue that, you know, at first glance, it's so overwhelming. Mm. Um, but I feel like we have amazingly been put in this position where we have uh, been able to create research that is really having an impact or, and will have more of an impact over the coming years in terms of helping people recover from a terrible, terrible disease. So I feel very blessed to be where we are, that all of the different things in my background from um, you know, the, the research side and the programming and the, the political side and the starting of nonprofits, it's all come together and coalesced into giving me the background and the experience to help um, really effectively run with, with what we're finding. And so I have very high hopes, for example, that over the next couple of years, um, a lot more people will start coming to our nonprofit website, Conquer Addiction, which is conquer-addiction.org, and using those resources to find treatment centers that will give their loved ones the best possible chances of recovering. And the research that we are um, collecting and analyzing. I'm now turning that into um, uh, blog posts and writings, trying to trying to translate it from, you know, scientific research to what does a parent need to know about the uh, length of care of treatment? You know, how long should a child stay in treatment, if at all possible? And how is that going to impact with what their chances of recovery are? Or how is uh, going to a sober living environment, going to a sober living home uh, after treatment for at least a month? Um, is that worth doing? Well, it will double or triple the likelihood that your patient is a, your your loved one is able to uh, stay in recovery. It will make a dramatic impact. So, you know that sort of research, translating it into actions that families and parents can use to make smart decisions about how to care for their loved ones who were struggling with addiction. Um, I, I think over the coming years, this will be able to have a, a, an impact on a lot of lives. And so I feel very blessed to be in this position. Well, I, I just think this is fantastic. And I personally just want to thank you for setting this up. Yeah. This is an incredibly useful tool for everybody. Well, thank you. But, you know, one of the things that's very frustrating is that while we have dozens of treatment centers on conquer addiction who are uh, investing in, in uh, measuring their outcomes and willing to share their results with the public, um, it's still a tiny, tiny fraction of the thousands of addiction treatment centers that are out there. And I've come to the unhappy conclusion that the best way 
that we're going to change this industry and and get uh, get a lot more treatment centers to uh, make the decision to track their outcomes is if consumers start demanding this. If consumers say, you know, um, uh, calling up a treatment center and they say, you know, well, I wanted to, you know, I, I really was interested in sending Johnny to your treatment center, but I don't understand. Why aren't you tracking your outcomes and reporting them? I mean, this is healthcare, right? I mean, you know, if if if, my, if Johnny had cancer, we would be able to go online and we would be able to know here is the effectiveness of each of these different types of treatments. And with, here is the doctors that are, you know, treating their patients very effectively. And here are the hospitals with, you know, the best success, you know, the, the, the lowest death rates. And, you know, we'd be able to find that information, but very little of that information exists about addiction treatment. And the only place that it exists in, in, that has been independently validated right now is on the Conquer Addiction website. And by the way, I know that when I'm talking about the importance of outcomes, it will come across as self-serving to some people. They'll say, she just wants to sell more of her research or you know whatever. Conquer Addiction it doesn't look at who is doing the research. Conquer Addiction just requires that you follow the standards that our independent panel of judges has set for what is effective addiction treatment research. You know, you have to promise the patient's confidentiality. You have to uh, follow up with a randomly selected group of your patients. You can't just cherry pick the patients who were still in treatment six weeks later and only follow up with them, for example. So the judges at Conquer Addiction is a nonprofit with an independent panel of judges who have said, this is the way to do addiction treatment research. And treatment centers can hire Vista Research. They can hire somebody else. They can do it internally if they, you know, set up a Chinese firewall between their research department and their clinical team. I just want to encourage a lot more centers to make the very minor investment in tracking their outcomes because we know that that improves how many of their patients will recover. And in the bottom line, that's what matters. Are patients, are you helping as many patients as possible recover from addiction? Yeah. So just to, just to sum this up from my perspective, you're really coming at this from both ends of the spectrum in terms of you're, you're asking families to become advocates in a slightly more formal way for their the family member who will become a patient so you're like when i talked to where maz went to rehab it never dawned on me to say well what what's your success rate i i was in such a frantic place i just wanted to get a bed just get him a bed just go 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 yeah. go so um you're asking you're asking families to think about asking that critical question you're asking uh, treatment facilities 
to be willing to do the the work and share the results. And then I think I think there's a third piece which you haven't addressed, but I think it's an important piece of this, which is policy. Yes. We really have to have policymakers in place who say enough with othering addiction, pretending that it's not as legitimate a disease as cancer or diabetes or anything else. Let's stop. Let's stop that. Let's start holding treatment centers accountable by making sure that they have the resources that they need. Let's make sure insurance is covering an appropriate amount of treatments. I mean, all these pieces that really can only come from lawmakers. Um, so it's this multifaceted prong. But what I love about it, Joanna, is that as a as a um, person, as an individual who does not represent a constituency, I actually do have a role to play in this. God forbid I ever need to reach out to a treatment center again. I do have a piece to play in this. I yes. love that. Yes. Um, I think, I think advocating um, is, is critically important. Um, I guess it, you may be right that a lot of families that are looking for treatment are not thinking about, um, you know, are not asking those questions. And maybe it's because I was a data geek, but you know, once, you know, a lot of people will need treatment more than once. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, you know, I don't, I don't say this is, you know, set in stone, but it's not uncommon to need multiple bouts of treatment. Karina ended up with three residential treatments. I'm not counting all the IOPs. I'm not counting all the sober livings. I'm not counting on, but that is not uncommon. And it just seems to take a while before they finally are able to choose life over whatever the drug is that's calling to them that has somehow convinced them that the drug is more important than anything else. That's what that's what people who are addicted are, are really struggling with. So I would think that by the second time somebody is looking for treatment and realizing they have to find treatment that it's that's maybe they may be more aware that it doesn't always work or it doesn't work permanently it might work for a short time and then the patient relapses again and then it gets worse again and then they need another bout of treatment and so um <clears throat> you may be more typical than I was in terms of not asking about success rates from the beginning. But when we went to family programs, for example, there were people in there that, you know, they would, they were on their seventh episode oh. of treatment for, mm -hmm. for their, for their child. And I remember one father who'd lost two children already, and this was his third son. And, you know, his third son, this was the, umpteenth treatment episode. And um, it, I mean, this is an incredibly scary disease. Yeah, incredibly scary. And so um, I'd like to make people aware that it is possible to measure the effectiveness of treatment. It does vary tremendously across treatment centers. And it's not expensive for treatment centers to measure it. 
I think the fastest way we're going to affect change is to encourage treatment centers to measure it versus, you know, once we try and get Congress involved and everything. I mean, they, they're having their difficulties passing. Now, now is not the time <laughs> yeah. to get them involved. I agree. Policy is the third step in yeah. my life. Right. But if people who are searching for treatment can just ask, and even if their center doesn't currently do it, can say, I don't get this. It'll just cost you a couple, you know, you know, twenty-five thousand or thirty or forty thousand dollars a year to do this research on a high number of of, of your patients. Yeah. Why aren't you making that minimal investment to do it? I think that's what's going to affect change faster than anything else. I yeah. hope. Well, wow, Joanna, thank you well, for. Thank you your side of this story, and then for all of this um, measurable work. You're, you're absolutely right. It's one thing to hope for things. It's another thing to put into play actual tangible results, which don't guarantee anything, but at least give people a better sense of what they're entering into, what their possibilities might be coming out. Right. And I hope I haven't sounded too depressing. I mean, there are a tremendous number of really excellent treatment centers out there and Although, very, very caring people who are doing everything in their power to help patients recover. It's just that there are some bad ones too. And it's, you can't really tell the difference necessarily no. from the outside. I'm sorry, no. Maz, I, I interrupted oh, you. I didn't, I, I, I was just agreeing with you. I, there are, when I went to, so this was 2017. At the time, there was an advert on the TV for, I think it was called Malibu Recovery or something. Do you remember this? Yes, I this do. Was, oh, yeah, we, we go horseback riding and everything. <laughs> and I'm sitting in this little treatment room, which worked for me, and I love it. But I sat around, I saw this on the TV, and I looked around and thought, yeah, I'm not going horseback riding. I'm full in a room of people who were sweating out methadone and chain smoking. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it wasn't quite as glamorous as had, had he gone to rehab in Malibu. But guess what? We got to keep our house. So there was that. <laughs> and, even, and the people in rehab with me, everyone hated this advert. And, yeah. and it disappeared off the TV. Yeah. And about a year later, um, on a TV show, I think it might have actually been something John Oliver was it doing. Was. You know, it was. It was. He did this whole thing on addiction in America. I thought, yes. <laughs> yeah. So I want to thank you for making this easier for probably parents, but even for people who just, who actually have the right state of mind to say, I need help. Yeah. This is going to help them too. Yes. So check out conquer-addiction.org. And, and um, do you have a website for your uh, research arm as well, Joanna? Yeah, it's vistaresearchgroup.com. But again, it's with dashes between it, vista-research-group.com. And okay. we publish our results. We publish, you know, 60-page reports of all of our results and stuff like that. But those publications are a lot more geared towards, you know, people in the industry. Yeah. Where, where we're writing to families and, and trying to um, take the research learnings and put it into um, ways that they can use 
use it to help their own child or spouse or themselves. That's on conquer addiction. So. Oh, good. So you do the cliff notes there. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Great. Exactly. I remember when I was dealing with all Ocrina stuff. I mean, I wasn't in a position where I could read oh, sixty page not. reports. Don't sit down and read a sixty page report. You want no. You, you want, want 12 bullet post. points to say, yes. right, we're going. Yes. <laughs> yep. We need to know length of care, length of stay and treatment makes a big difference. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Don't well, let them leave early. <laughs> yes. Well, we're two for two between a daughter and mother team. Thank yeah. you. This wow. has been brilliant. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing all of this work. And my gosh, just continued best of luck with it. Absolutely. It's so important. Well, thank you both. And thank you for all that you are doing to raise the awareness of addiction and that people do recover and they recover all the time. And fortunately, there's an awful lot of hopeful stories out there. Even when things look really bad, there's always hope that tomorrow is going to be the day that changes everything. So that's that's very true and a beautiful way to end our conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Joanna. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, everybody else, we will probably be back next Tuesday. We haven't quite decided yet. We'll be in New York City. So if if we've showered, we'll probably <laughs> hop on. If you don't see us, then we'll be well, back. We'll have an extra hour to pull that off. That's true. But next Thursday, we have a pre-record conversation you do not want to miss. So we'll definitely be back Thursday, possibly Tuesday. Joanna, thank thanks you. so much thank for you, everything. We'll talk to you all later. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and DD. If you enjoyed the content and want to learn more, head over to Facebook to Daily Dose Dr. Mary DD. You can find us on YouTube under Dana DelVal. And if you want to get signed up for our weekly newsletter, email me at D-A-Y-N-A at D-A-Y-N-A-D-E-L-V-A-L dot com. Have a great day. We hope to see you soon. Bye-bye.